Hello, and welcome to Texas State Choirs Today. I'm your host, Jonathan Babcock, coming to you from the historic Fire Station Studios on the Texas State University campus. Today, our guest is Dr. Lynn Brinkmeyer. She's the Director of Choral Music Education at Texas State and is a former president of the National Association for Music Education. Dr. Brinkmeyer, welcome to the show, and thanks for being here with us. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Now, since most of our... uh, audience is from the undergraduate realm. I like to start every show just finding out about your undergrad experience and what you were like back when you were first starting. Where, where did you do your undergraduate work? I am not a typical undergraduate because I was married and I did pieces of my undergraduate work at the, the community college in Carlsbad, New Mexico through New Mexico State. Then I moved on to Eastern New Mexico University and that's exactly where I finished my degree and graduated from with my bachelor's and master's. Because I got married at 16, I did things a little bit differently. So my children and I grew up together, and they went with me to lots of classes and sat out in the auditorium sometimes when I was at a rehearsal or something like that. I can remember looking out there, seeing them both sleeping in the auditorium at many different rehearsals. And probably happy that they were sleeping and not running around. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So t- can you talk about the challenges of being a non-traditional student as, a, as opposed to being an 18, 19-year-old? What, what was the extra that... I think there are pros and cons from that type of a situation. The cons are I felt like I was really unprepared and way behind my colleagues that were 10, 15 years younger than me, depending on if they were freshmen or or seniors. So I felt like they were so much smarter than me, so much better musicians than me. that, That was a discomfort that I had to work through in my own insecurities. The pro part of it, though, was because I was paying for my own college mm-hmm. tuition. I was paying for my own books, and I wanted this degree so bad I could taste it because my whole life I wanted to be a music teacher. I had just, by some of my decisions, it was going to be a little bit later than I had originally planned on. I knew what I wanted to do vehemently, and so that fire was there for me where some people are still trying to figure out who they are at 18 or 19. I also was comfortable with children. I had two students of my own that I lived with day to day, and I was not scared of them. And so I was completely comfortable in standing in front of a group of people and making sure that they understood that I was in charge. So I wasn't scared of students. And sometimes I know that you can walk into a room of 45 middle school inquire, it can be a little bit intimidating when they're all looking at you and you're not sure what to do. And so I had that experience going for me because I was more more comfortable in a room full of students because I'd had them in my house all the time. Oh, that, that is, that's, that is, that's really interesting of that point of view. You said that, uh, you always knew you wanted to be a music teacher. How did you know that? What, what, what gave you that spark? I can't remember not being enthralled with music, loving music. Probably the most impactful thing was my cousin. She was four years older than me, and she played the piano. And I went out to her house two to three times every week, lived in a little tiny country place in Oklahoma. She had a piano. As soon as I got to her house, we can probably bet on within five minutes, I was asking her if she would play the piano and so I could stand and sing beside her. That was the huge impact for me as before I went to school. And then my kindergarten, first grade teacher, 
in music. Her name was Mrs. Davis, and she was probably about four foot five, little tiny banny rooster type person. She was dynamic, and we all loved her, and I wanted to be her. That I decided then, and I never changed my mind. I want to be a music teacher just like she is. And in fact, I noticed in the book we're going to talk about in a little while, you dedicated the book to Mrs. Davis, didn't you? I did, yeah. That's that's so sweet. She's she's the one that got it all started. Yes, she off. is. How about a favorite story from your undergraduate? So, so, some some funny or poignant or. I I'll think about it's probably poignant more than funny, and I don't know why this story comes to mind. I remember this was probably about two semesters into my taking classes at the community college in Carlsbad. And I only took two music classes. One was a voice lesson, and then one was sort of a a fine arts class, just an introduction to fine arts type class. And we were required to go to a concert. And so I did go to a concert, and it was, I believe it was Concordia University was performing. And I remember sitting on about the second or third row of this performance hall. I had only been in this type of a hall maybe two or three times in my life, sitting there bawling my eyes out, watching that choir, because I knew at that time and the situation in my life, that wasn't ever going to be an opportunity for me. And I just remember sitting there thinking, this if, if I could have the life I wanted, I would be on that stage singing with those students. And I just remember being brokenhearted that that wasn't ever going to happen for me. It was, it was a life-defining moment. I think things changed later on in my life for a lot of other reasons, but I I just remember that being so impactful that, oh my gosh, I would do anything to be able to have that experience. Never imagining at that time that I'd actually stand in front of those students and actually be waving my arms at them. That didn't occur to me then. Life has a way of working its way out, doesn't it? (laughs) Well, and thank goodness that you always wanted to be a music educator because you have done so much for our community and have worked so tirelessly as a music educator. As I said earlier, you were the president of the National Association for Music Education. What drew you to that kind of leadership? What what made you want to be in a leadership position in a national organization or... You know, I'm, I actually had this conversation with someone just a couple of weeks ago that I was the president for the collegiate organization for MENC at that time when I was an undergrad. And if someone had told me then that I was going to be the president for the National Association, I would have thought they were smoking something. No way in the world was that even thing something that I could envision in my life. I don't know that I actually thought about could I really be a national leader until I started my job at Eastern Washington University. Up until that time, though, I felt like I I needed to help. So each time I'd get in a leadership position, it was because how how can I help? How can I make this better? What can I do so that I can provide things for students that I didn't get? in my undergrad or in my graduate teaching. I had wonderful school experiences and fabulous faculty. And the methods at that time weren't as evolved as the methodologies are and the curriculum that we have. And I just wanted to make the curriculum better and give them opportunities. So I started being a leader simply because I was thinking about the students. And then finally, when I was a leader in the Northwest, someone planted the idea that you, you should run for Northwest Division president. And I what? I thought they were crazy. What? Are you serious? 
I, you know, they said, yes, you should. So I, okay. And I put my name out there. And you're nominated by someone else, but I accepted the nomination. And things just have kind of evolved since then. Wow. And we, sometimes we need those peers to just kind of push us out into yeah. traffic. This and was one of those peers. Pushing is a good word. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Believed in me before I believed in myself. Well, why don't you tell our listeners just a little bit about what they, what they can take from NAFME? What does NAFME offer undergraduates or new teachers or teachers that have been working for a long time? I think that NAFME sometimes is misunderstood because it's not as focused on providing those teaching strategies that you you can use on Monday morning or you know all, all these all the things that our state organizations provide hands-on ways to teach hands-on ways to to do clarinet fingerings all those types of things that our state associations do so well the state's Every state I've ever been in, they cover those types of things in their organizations, in their conferences. When MENC started, that was not the case. And things have developed, and so the states are doing things on their own. The thing that I think is the most valuable about NAFME is that they're they're just a few miles from Capitol Hill. And they have professional individuals there who are there on Capitol Hill all the time, making sure that when there's legislation that is going to be considered a taking music out of the core curriculum, it's, it is in the core curriculum now because of the work that NAFME leadership and um, officers and staff, etc., have all done to make sure that it's in the verbiage, whether or not it's acted upon in, in, in the translation down into the schools is one thing. It's there. So I think the most valuable part of it is they're protecting our profession, they meaning uh, the staff and the leadership of NAFME, are protecting our position in the public education and constantly keeping an eye on it, that vigilance. And so that's that's the most important. And also them making these these wonderful relationships with like NAM, you know, in the business world and the makers of instruments and on all these different organizations, they're, they're creating relationships now with, with ACDA, ASTA, I mean, all these, I, mean, I don't want to quote too many because I don't want to get the list wrong, but I do know that list is growing and growing to create cohesive work together and, and instead of individuals doing lots of work, but everybody doing it on their own. And then, so now they're vital about that. So it's sort of like, you know, how life insurance, we don't want to buy life insurance because we don't pay the money, but when you need life insurance, it's pretty important. And it's that same kind of thing. I think NAFME is life insurance for our profession, for our students, and for our teachers. Well, that's actually an excellent segue because I'd really like to talk about your 2016 book, Advocate for Music, a guide to user-friendly strategies. What was the impetus for you writing this book for advocating? Obviously, from your work with NAFME, I'm sure that was the start, but why did you feel like you had to write a book about it? I'll back up a little bit and saying I'm one of the fortunate ones. I have gone to Capitol Hill and I've sat in front of senators with the power suit on and talked to them about music education, the, the, the association of, um, not the association, excuse me, our, our profession and what it offers for students. So I've done that many times. Not everyone has had that opportunity and, and many people that I've interacted with, they think, okay, that's advocacy. Somebody needs to advocate. Somebody like the officers in MENC, NAFME, ACDA, you just go down the the different alphabet list, and somebody like that needs to do the advocacy. I'm too busy teaching. 
And that's the kind of thing I actually used to think about when I was a new teacher. It never occurred to me that actually I am an advocate as well. And I was asked to do an advocacy session in Texas, and I really don't remember now how I got that advocacy session, if I was invited to do that or if it was the the NAFME leadership, Texas leadership at that time asked me to do it. I don't remember, but I, mm-hmm. I do know that I, I did a clinic. And Norm Hershey, who is, is working with Oxford, he came to my, my uh, session, and he said, you need to put this in a book. And I said, okay. Okay, <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> I'd like to do that. Yeah, <laughs> and he guided me through the process. It was was um, sometimes I've I mean I've te- teased with you because I know you're in the process of writing a book right now too. That it's like birthing a baby. You think it's never ever going to happen, yes, and <laughs> summer whales. You know they take a while. So this this process of okay, I'm going to write a book. I did get the proposal accepted. I'm going to write a book on advocacy. What kind of book do I want to write? There are brilliant thinkers who write these amazing books for people who are PhD students or someone in a graduate class that that they need that type of resource. I wanted to write a resource that was for public school teachers, whether you're elementary, whether you're preschool, whether you are uh, maybe even um, a parochial school, something like that. I wanted or parents. I wanted to write a book that was user friendly ideas beyond the power suit talking to someone at Capitol Hill. And so that book has nearly a hundred strategies that are ways that you can be an advocate and you don't have to put a power suit on one single time and you don't have to call a legislator. You don't have to talk to a congressman if you don't want to. You can. And there's ways to do that and people to contact. So that's – I wanted that to be a resource guide. And I think one of the most brilliant things about the book is it's so well organized. It's very uh, compartmentalized and you do this and this. Can you talk a little bit about your process of how you organized the book and why you organized it the way you did? Well, thank you. When, when I started thinking about that, I thought, okay, there's the public school teacher that is so overwhelmed just trying to teach me. And I know there are some states, I and mean, I, I just was in North Carolina, and some of their music teachers see their students twice a month. And if there happens to be a holiday on one of those days, they may only see them once a month. And I know Idaho is that way when I used to teach there. I don't know exactly how it is now. So what can I do for those teachers that are struggling just to get the standards taught in their schools and make their principals happy if the principals want them to have a program for every grade and those types of things? I mean, there's overwhelming jobs sometimes. And then there's the people that maybe they're in leadership. Maybe they want to connect with some of the congressmen. Maybe they want to do something at the state level, and they're not necessarily interested in flying to D.C., doing presentations there or talking to their congressman, but they'd like to do something here in in, in their capital city or at least in their state. And then there are those that are involved in leadership that would go to D.C. and would, and some some people, it doesn't matter if they're in leadership or not, they decide, I'm going to go to Capitol, the Capitol Hill in, in Washington and go to the senator's building, and I'm going to talk to people. And you, you, you can certainly do that, too. So I thought there were three types, three populations, and that's why I geared it that way. And the majority of the book is focused more for the classroom teacher that's probably not ever going to go somewhere and, 
and do advocation face-to-face, advocating face-to-face. They may do something with their school board, and I always recommend in the, if you go to talk to your school board, have your students do a presentation. Do it when there's not some kind of scary political issue. Do it when it's just a thank you. These are the students that are benefiting from the school music. Thank you for supporting us, that type of thing, and do it as a thank you rather than, you know, you're going to take my job away. And it's because it's not about our job. It's about helping our students have the same opportunities we did. Absolutely. That, that's beautiful. And, you know, I can remember back when I was an undergrad and a public school teacher of talking about advocacy. This isn't a new thought or, or a new movement. What what is it that people don't get? Why why do we still have to be advocating so hard? What is it that people don't understand that this is so important? Well, I've got a variety of opinions on that. <laughs> I think the biggest thing for music teachers, we educators, to understand is that we know if we have a class of second graders or 10th graders, or sophomores in college come into our class, we know that we need to teach something by doing it more than once. We need to teach it several times, reach, teach it, reteach, review it, reinforce. We know that. As educators, we know we have to constantly keep refining and, re- and renewing this information. They leave over the, the holiday for Christmas and come back, and it's like your choir has never sung with a unified vowel in your life. You, you know, all those types of things. Oh, that's right. I forgot. So we, I think in some ways we are part of the problem, and I don't mean that in a negative way. It's, it's, it's as an aha moment for us. We know our students need to be re-educated over and over and over. Yet when we, quote, advocate, we'll walk up to a board meeting or something like that and tell people why music education is important and hand them a handout. And so check that off list we've educated. We've advocated. We, we're done. And remembering that adults who don't have our background, they, they don't get what we do. And we don't get what they do sometimes because we don't have the True. same information that they have. That's a good point. And so it's our responsibility, in my view, to educate them, not throw stuff information and think it's stuffed in their head and remember it. And it, I mean, any of the business writings and things that I've read and, and podcasts I've listened to, what is it? You need seven no's before you get a yes, that type of thing. And it's that same kind of things with selling our program, if you want to call that, or selling this opportunity for our students. We need to hear, as adults, as people, we need to hear this information over and over and over again before, oh, okay, it's starting to make sense. So I think that we, we, just, we music teachers do a one-shot thing sometimes instead of truly educating our peers. And keeping it as a a constant process, not yes. just... Yeah, we just check uh, it off the list. Okay, I advocated. I'm done. You know, right, I, exactly. I, I called my congressman one time, so I'm done. I did my part. And it's, it's constantly renewing. And it can be exhausting. I mean, I do know that, too. So, Do you find that, and maybe you don't know the answer to this, but in, in other fields of education, math, science, do you feel like they need to advocate as much as we do? Because STEM is a, a big topic right now and that we need more, that they're not getting enough science, they're not getting enough math. What, what do you say 
if, if does there need to be advocacy there or well I'm not sure that I have an answer for that, but I will tell you from a perspective that my daughter teaches fourth grade. And the school that she works in, they spend time on reading. They spend time on math. They're not allowed to teach spelling because it takes up too much time. They're not allowed to teach science. And they're not allowed to teach social studies. So I don't know that that is common over all states. It's mm-hmm. not a Texas school. It, and I believe that there are some places that other parts of the curriculum are probably feeling the, the crunch and frustration. I mean, I, I certainly know that PE and theater and you know, some of the other arts, yeah. absolutely. So I would think that there are some places that do feel that way, absolutely, or some other parts of the curriculum that are starting to feel some of that as well. That's interesting and good to know that we're not the only ones that feel like we're banging our heads on the wall Mm -hmm. every once in a while. I think we're all there a little bit. You know, and I I did learn this through the leadership when I'm when I'm not just using my own personal lens to look through when I'm trying to look at things holistically. Things like No Child Left Behind, that legislation, you know, has has has, um, some people have some interesting things to say about it. The intention, in my view, of all these legislative decisions and laws have been so that they're going to help our students. None of these legislative decisions have been because we're going to make us the worst educated country in the world. That's not been the reason these have been doing it. Different people agree or disagree about what is the best way to get there. They're, the intention of these decisions and these laws is to help. Sometimes the interpretation at different levels things start getting sort of manipulated and trying to figure out how can I still do this or how can I make this work for me or and sometimes these they're unma- you know they're unfunded mandates as well and and I just think our administrators are overwhelmed with so many things they have to do that they they pick and choose because what's the highest priority math and science or students are going to be able to get a job and I, I just think there's it's a huge responsibility on some of these administrators to try and fit everything in and still keep their job Mm-hmm. Keep keep their schools going too because they've got. I mean, one of my colleagues one time said, "You know, coaches are people too." And because mm-hmm. sometimes the point the arts and, and athletics start having disagreements on what's best for that one student that does both. It's your mm-hmm. best football player and also the star tenor, you know, in your concert that type of thing. And, and they've got tremendous pressure as well. So it, it's kind of coming from all different aspects. Well said. Thank you for that. If we've got new teachers out there all the time, if if we've got a new teacher goes out and they're going to be a, a small program, what 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 would you what advice would you give them of how to both advocate for their program, build their program, and be happy teaching their program? <laughs> Well, my, my first recommendation, this is certainly stuff that I say to students here at Texas State, find where your joy is. If you're going to go into teaching, you need to love it. It needs to be something that you can't live without for you to truly love it. If you love what you do, that joy is going to be trans translated to your students and you're going to find ways to help them learn. You may struggle that first year or that second year and that third year. You're going to constantly be looking for ways that you can be a better educator, though. That's going to happen innately. If you have happy kids in your program, you have happy parents. And the parents are the best advocates in the rule in the world for what's going on. And so simply 
doing that for the first three or four years and really making sure that you are being the best educator you know how, constantly seeking out mentor, asking for feedback. It's uncomfortable to do that. I think after you graduate, thank goodness I never have to somebody do a rubric about me and, and again in my life. <laughs> but getting that that feedback from someone to help you constantly. How do I, how can I be how can I be like that person that I see? Go watch other people teach. Go go learn as much as you possibly can after you get your job. Continue that fire. And it's going to and it's going to keep you excited about being in the field that you're in. And so I think that the happiest kids are the best advocates and their parents, then that advocacy is going to come naturally for you. And to me, about being a teacher and, you, you know, the first year, the second year, the third year, the 25th year, the 26th year, you're always getting better. You're always learning new things and trying to get better. It's, it's a journey. It, yes, it's it is. not a destination. No, I think it's that's not. one of the things that's fun about being a teacher. No, Absolutely. No two days are exactly the same. That, that is for sure. Now, of course, we want everybody to go buy your book. But if you could just give us a few, someone wants to advocate for their program. What's, what are a few first easy steps to start? Well, that depends on, you know, let's say if you are in a general music situation and you want to advocate for your program, you can have your, stent, your students fill out cards and the sentence stem might be, I love music because, or music is important to me because. If you have your students fill that out for you, then you can put that, you can type up those comments and you can have that in a rolling PowerPoint that's being displayed as your parents are walking in to the program and sitting down in the cafetorium, you know, that, that type of thing. Or you can have those printed out to add in your program or something like that if you don't have that opportunity. Simply things like that, letting the students speak about why music speaks to them, why it's important. It's amazing. I do that with my children's chorus every year. And it, the insights are, now I have to say some students say they love choir because there's snacks. And that's okay. <laughs> get them in the door and then maybe I can teach them to, like, to love music after that. Some of their, their insights and their comments are inc- incredible. The, if you, you have an ensemble that is in middle school or high school, you know, just even going into the office with your choir, I'll, t- I'll take choir, and you can do this with a small ensemble of, of instruments if you want to or something like that. Going and singing Happy Birthday or just singing something small and short that uh, for the administrative staff and thanking them, giving them a box of chocolate with the balloon. Even when it's not a birthday, it actually means more when it's not a birthday. Just thanking people for supporting music education, for supporting their students. Just thank them for doing their job because they are supporting you just by being in the building and handling all these things we don't know about that happen behind the scene. That's still advocacy. You can put the the names and addresses and um, email links to the different senators, congressmen, House of Representatives, etc. You can put that in your program and say, support music education. If you decide to buy my book, there are some sample letters and some sample things that you could say. And if you don't want to do that, then you can actually go on to the NAFI website and they've got some sample things that you can go. I know TMEA has all kinds of incredible advocacy stuff going on. There are ways you can do it, which probably isn't going to take you more than 10, 15 minutes to get it prepared. And as as we're talking, it just it occurs to me that it almost seems like the words advocacy and awareness are almost synonymous. Keep people aware 
of what you're doing. Don't just stay in the choir room. Go out and show people. Like you say, go sing happy birthday to the secretary, the principal. People are aware. The people around in the office are going to hear that as well. And just keeping people aware of the good things you're doing. I like that idea. Just to add to that, if, if people don't think of anything else after this podcast, if they can remember awareness and educate, those two terms, if you do those two, you're going to be an incredible advocate. Wonderful. Thank you, and congratulations on the book. It's it, it's really, really a, 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 a great resource well, for, for those of us in the field. Thank uh, you. Congratulations. Well, I've had a blast. This is fun. Uh, our last section I like to lovingly call the spot check, and I just have a few questions of just what do people want to know about Lynn Brinkmeyer. So I'm just going to fire some. This is the some, scary part this now. This is the scary part, because <laughs> <laughs> I know what they are. You know. <laughs> But these are pretty. These are pretty safe. Uh, what's your favorite class to teach? Yes, <laughs> it's whatever I'm standing in front of. I, if I'm teaching women's choir, it's my favorite thing to do in the world. And if I'm in choral methods, it's my favorite thing to do in the world. I, I, I don't know how to choose. It's like which one of your children are you going to throw to the wolves? I like them all. I love them all. I don't, I don't know how to choose. And it's nice when you just like to teach and you like to be around people. I don't know anything about that. What is one of your biggest points of pride throughout your career? It could be anything. What's something that sticks out that, wow, that was an amazing moment? Um, There are two things. This may seem silly. Yesterday, is today Thursday? Yes, it is. Yesterday, in women's choir rehearsal, I was standing back listening to Callianne Proctor conduct her piece, I Am the Win, with Elaine Hagenberg. I was fighting back tears because it was so beautiful, and the women in the choir were just mesmerized by her conducting, and, and giving them they were giving 100%, and I was standing back there thinking, I get to do this for a living. I This is my job. I get to have this amazing musical experience. I, I'm so lucky I get to do this. And so that was a mountaintop experience. The other one I'll say that is more of a professional thing that was planned and invited type of thing. I conducted the elementary Florida Allstate in January. And when the children were singing, I think with this were fourth and fifth graders, about close to 200, I don't remember exactly, but it was wall-to-wall children on the, on the <laughs> auditorium mm-hmm. stage, watching their faces just be absolutely beaming through that converse, that whole entire concert, and at the end, you know, I, I could barely contain myself. There was so much joy and an immediate standing ovation, and they just, they sang so well, and they were trying so hard to be musical and be mature. It was, a, it was another mountaintop fascinating experience that, that really stuck with me. It's wonderful. It's wonderful to be able to play. And there's so many, I'm sure, throughout your career that you could probably list forever and ever. But I agree with you. We're very lucky to have the jobs that we do. Are you a member of a national music fraternity or sorority? Sigma Alpha Iota. (laughs) Wonderful. When and where did you play? I was, um, I entered into that in. during my master's, 
at uh, Eastern New Mexico University. So that's what I became. In fact, I'm actually going to be conducting the SAI sing-along at TMEA. They just oh, asked me about fun. two weeks ago. So that'll be fun. Wonderful. I know you've done that before, too. It's, I've done it's it a, a blast. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I am a sister. I, oh. I'm an honorary <laughs> sister. I, uh, <laughs> I'm in there, too. Uh, last one. What do you do for fun? This, it's, I'm just such a geek. That <laughs> <laughs> I know it's really kind of pathetic that I actually read stuff about being a music teacher. <laughs> Lynn. <laughs> for fun. It's pretty sad. I, I spend a lot of time walking, meditating. Sometimes I'm working with trainers and things like that. So I use that physical. I, I love to do that. In, in the the traveling I get to do, to me, that is so joyful. And it's always going to learn more about music education in other parts of the world. Th- those are the true, most joyful times that I get to go off for me just to do what I want to do. And it, it's incredible. And I, I spend a lot of time sneaking off and going to see my family in New Mexico and, mm-hmm. and that, you know, playing with my grandchildren and, and just watching them, these amazing little humans, w- watch them grow up. That's a blast. And so it, it's kind of a common, it's not just one thing that I do, it's a combination of things. So, And I, I will give you a shout out. I, you mentioned exercise and I remember now two different international choir tours where we would all be at the bar or taking a nap and you're doing laps around the block around the hotel because you're so dedicated to your exercise and to your routine. You're just, you're so well disciplined. It's 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 impressive well, for sure. Some people might think it's kind of sad, but <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. You're out, going to outlive all of us. Well, this has been so much fun. Thank you for being on our second episode of Texas State Choir today, and this has been really fun well, talking with you. It's been a blast. You. I'm delighted to be here, and I can't wait to go hear Dr. Martin's podcast. That's my next to-do thing. Wonderful. Thank you. This has been Texas State Choirs Today, the podcast for all things choir at Texas State. Our show's producer is Francis Nieves, our audio engineer is Ian Flores, and Mark Erickson is our media consultant. Thank you so much. This is Jonathan Babcock, and remember to always keep singing.